This is Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Fettesy. I'm Bridget Fettesy, and you are welcome. (laughs) You know the drill. Please subscribe, rate, comment, share, reach out, tell your friends, send smoke signals, whatever. We love your feedback and we want to hear from you. If you like our work and want to support us, the best way to do that is join Phetasy.com. You'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, outtakes, discounts on merch, and the ability to submit questions for some of our upcoming guests. Support your favorite scrappy little internet heroes at Phetasy.com. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, turning topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the podcast, we continue our series doing a chapter-by-chapter discussion with author Thomas Dezengotita about his book, Mediated. Thomas's book, How the Media Shapes Your World and the Way You Live in It, was instrumental in my life and informing how I view basically everything through the lens of this book. There was a little bit of a snafu in that we released chapter three before we released chapter two. So last week was actually chapter three, and this week is chapter two. So it's a little bit reversed in the order. And so this week we'll be talking about the cult of the child and more talk about teenagers and so much more. Love the discussions with Thomas. He's just the best. All right. I'm back with Thomas de Zangotita, and we are continuing our series of talking about his book, Mediated, and going through it chapter by chapter. And appropriately, I took a break because I had a baby in between our last session, and we are now talking about your chapter two, The Cult of the Child. And do you have children? Yes, I do. I'm the proud father of two very grown-up kids. But how are they about my age? Um, let's see. I was born in seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. You're the, yeah. exactly my daughter's age. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> first, the first child. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're we came of age in the the sweet nineties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have? Two daughters or a daughter and a son? A daughter and a son. Okay. Uh, Will, Will is, uh, he was born in 83. Okay. I, I Don't get me started. It's too real for me <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> real, real. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking about how I would be outside of the blob and the newborn bubble is definitely its own blob. It was interesting because nothing can really penetrated, although some things did. You know, there are certain things that managed to get through, like tragic things generally. My Uvalde happened when I was like four weeks postpartum. 
and I couldn't even look at it, but it was still just everywhere and um, as it should be. And then my OBGYN tragically and shockingly died of a heart attack. Oh, oh. yeah. Which was, I mean, he was just the best. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Someone so close to you. Uh, in that moment, you know, I that, can't, I mean, no. I've been, I have to come. So it's been, it's weird to experience grief and, in this like intensely, you know, happy and exciting and joyous and miraculous mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So it's been, it's interesting though, because I was talking to Maggie, my cousin and producer about the newborn bubble, and I've written a little bit about it. And I've been thinking about you a lot saying, you know, nothing will kind of pierce it, but I, I've been off of Twitter because Twitter is too negative, but I have been just scrolling through Instagram, which I normally don't because they have all this mommy content and it's so crazily relatable, but yeah. it also makes me think about how I was saying to Maggie on our check-in yesterday is, is everyone an influencer now? It seems yeah. like people just have babies and they're like, all right, we're making yeah, content yeah. now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was, it was content yeah. that I kind of needed in those dark nights, breastfeeding when you're all alone with your thoughts, which can be, you know, yeah. there's some, rabbit holes you can go down in those moments but uh instagram came to save the day with its very curated targeted at me by the algorithm content that is for mommy so we're well into this process of the cult of the child i mean now it's it's a business it's not even a cult they've turned these children into full-fledged businesses sure And I wanted to just talk to you about, gosh, there's so much in this chapter. Can you kind of explain youth culture is representational through and through? What what does that mean exactly? And can you elaborate? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the extent to which, and this is going back to when I started writing this stuff. The book came out in 2006, but all of the essays and Harper's that led up to it are, you know, we're back in the eighties mm-hmm. and it was becoming apparent to me, even before the internet, the internet just put it all on steroids that more and more important in kids' lives was the extent to which they were fluent in the mediated culture that they all have in common. Mm-hmm. Now, even when I was a kid, you know, you had to know the, popular songs and some and and had to wear maybe a certain but the extent to which uh, kids began to invest themselves in sophisticated uses of mediated experience me movies tv you know just every and the incredible way that slang spreads there's always Mm -hmm. been slang but the velocity the speed with which it gets it catches on the intensity with which kids I watched uh, this is as a teacher I mean I just watched like 11 year old girl I got the the hardest time is seventh grade yeah that's that's the real shark's pit there when I agree that was my probably my hardest year seventh and eighth yeah yeah and um that's when the girls who can't quite say ew the way you're supposed to are struggling to say, ew, the way you should. 
right and make it seem natural and and but when it doesn't then the girls who dominate the mediated vernacular and know how to say you and like and know just how to go like this like you know, <laughs> uh are are taking over the culture the boys are nothing but this is such a misapprehension that the powers that be have but of course in high school okay the boys start to you know manipulate and dominate but in middle school the boys are nothing they're just yeah. little practice dolls for the girls i mean once in a while some kid will do some awful thing but but girls just dominate in middle school and they make all the judgments about the boys and the girls about who's in they're basically a panel of judges and what it's mostly based on is how fluidly you're able to use all of the mediated imagery and all of the mediated ge- gestures and intonations, the whole upspeak thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by that, right? I can't yeah. do it. Don't do that. You know mm-hmm. that I can't do it, but, <laughs> but they did it, you know, and it was like, um, Again, compared to the social pressures when I was a teenager in the 50s, and they were very much there, the social pressures that kids were started growing up with in the 80s and continue to to this day are almost entirely uh, representational in the sense that they exist in media. Right. Most of the social pressure I felt as a kid came from my peers. Right. And yeah, you had the Elvis, you had the, you know, some little thing with the way you combed your hair or whatever, but it's just nothing compared to how suffused with media the the social world for kids is today. So when I say they lead representational lives, you could just you could just take how a kid has to learn to curate their Facebook page. Right. And how in the process of curating their Facebook page, they're kind of publicly inventing who they are. Mm -hmm. And again, kids always did that. I did that. I stood in front of a mirror when I was 15 and I tried to slouch like James Dean. (laughs) I'm being a slightly stocky fellow. You know, slouching was not. (laughs) not. So I switched to Marlon Brando (laughs) and tried to glower and. You know, so it's, there were some media influences on right. me, but God, nothing compared to now. Yeah, you make the observation that they can feel nostalgia for a time they never lived through. Good. I definitely experienced that. I was I jokingly wrote, this is how I feel about Quaaludes because <laughs> I'm, reco- <laughs> I'm in recovery and I always hear yeah. these old timers talking about Quaaludes. Right. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, no. I really feel like I use Quaaludes, but I never did. Yeah, I got you. And, <laughs> and, and uh, again, the comparison is just the picture that I had of my, the environment that my parents lived in when they were growing up, the the teens and the 20s, was so impoverished. I mean, just practically empty. Right. But the picture that your average with it plugged in, you know, kid has of the 50s to when I was growing up, they've got such a rich picture of it Mm -hmm. that they can even feel a kind of nostalgia for times they never lived in 
really, because they've lived in it representationally. Yeah, that's the the weird thing. I mean, I wasn't even born when JFK was shot, but I feel like I, I have a strange nostalgia for right. that that's moment in time. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's because you've been repeatedly submerged in some very, very evocative and 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 powerful renderings. They might be the actual tape of Jackie mm-hmm. crawling back across the car, or they might be so you know Oliver Stone's movies, or mm-hmm. you know. But you've you have virtually, in effect, lived through that assassination in a way where did I live through the sinking of the Lusitania? No. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's interesting too, because you mentioned how long can this continuity go on? And I think later in the book, you were, you're talking about how it's already collapsing, which we'll get to. And I kind of think we've reached the end because everything feels uh, the, the youth now don't feel as connected to the fifties or sixties as perhaps my generation did, but maybe they're connected to the nineties because that's the same difference in, in time. But it does feel like everything's like flattened a little bit. And I see this with memes where everything is just, I'm, I'm like the minute a meme for me, memes are like the digestive enzyme of the blog. blog. Yeah. And the minute. I wish I could get that. And then I'd like to rewrite the book to make sure I could get that in there. That's exactly right, Bridget. The minute something's been memed, you're like, okay, it's been processed. And this happens instantly now. It's, it's not even, it it doesn't matter how tragic this situation is. It's, it's how people are processing this kind of shit going off the rails a little bit. And you talk about the word parenting, you know, you're Mm -hmm. like, can you imagine my grandfather using that word? Not in a million years. (laughs) We see it now too with adulting. So now we're using this word. Adulting is very common. It's like a whole millennial term. (laughs) Yeah. It makes my husband want to like burn things down. Right. But it is interesting to see, again, you're seeing that I see this as kind of the evolution of what you were writing about. It's now taken on the the verbing of of this there you go thing that we yeah. just were now yeah. it's a it's a you know millennials are like i'm adulting when they're doing something that adults do hmm. verbing the verbing of a noun yeah it's no, like, I got you. I got you. That's <laughs> it's like parenting <laughs> yeah no the parenting is like the ancestral form of that but and what i what did I pick? Why was that so? I, I don't want to think this through with the, uh, waste your time, but I'm going to. Oh, no, I please. I mean, that. no, that's a really nice. You were no, talking exactly about the it. The thing I'd like to analyze a little bit more, but I, I, I need I need time to think about it. The verbing. The verbing of these roles. Well, that means I know what it means. It means it means it feels more and more like I got it. I got it. I don't can't develop it, but I got it. OK, when you verb a role noun, you are displaying the fact that you are aware of yourself as playing the role. The self-consciousness of it. That's exactly. And again, we're back to what representation does to us. I mean, the kind of self-consciousness and self-reflexivity that it brings on. It's a a new kind of existence. So the kids who grew up with parents who are using the term parenting 
are the ones using the term adulting generally. If what you're saying is right, there's probably going to a bunch of verbing verbed nouns out there that I'm not even aware of. I'd like to take a quick break so we can talk about our sponsor. Well, I'm in trouble because my Helix mattress is so amazing. My baby sleeps the best in it. My baby sleeps like a baby. I have the Midnight Lux California King. I really love this mattress. It is really just the most comfortable mattress I've ever owned in my life. And now my baby can only sleep on a Helix mattress. So I'm going to have to see if they make Helix baby mattresses for her crib. Just go on, take the Helix quiz, and it will match you with whatever model mattress is best for you. Maybe you need something medium. That's what we have. And you sleep on your side or back or stomach or you move around all night. You take this quiz and Helix will match you up. Just go to helixsleep.com slash walk-in, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash walk-in. But what do you mean when you say flattening and coming to an end? What's the intuition there? My, my feeling is that it's all too much. I don't, and I think you point at this in the, in the book, just how the human mind really, we're not really yeah. made to ingest this much that, media. That is the bottom line point of the book. Okay. It's just too much. And because it's just too much, we've learned to deal with everything representationally. Mm-hmm. So we can turn it off and turn it on and move on and push it. So that dynamic is identified in the book. But what's happening now because it's just too much that you're telling me? Well, and I think I and I can't I ha, I don't know, again, how to articulate it. But when I was reading in this chapter about niceness replacing civility and the the process of even you talk about it in in God, there's so much in this book. I mean, the fact that you even talk about Harry Potter as an allegory for identity politics and seeing mm-hmm. what's happened with her. Rowling, in, yeah. It's so great. Talk about prescient. I mean, yes. because she won't toe the line. So all these people yeah. who grew up with her believing that whatever, whatever you say, you know, you can be different and special and belong. Yeah. which is the that's craziness the, of, the the of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And now she won't kind of toe the line on some of the well, stuff that they just, want her to, you know, but she's, she's drawing a line at the gender fluidity thing. And you don't see any of that in her. And that's just who she is generationally as a, you know, there's a lot of women her age who are drawing the line there. Yeah. I mean, I tend to be, I think probably one of those women who are drawing, not drawing a line, but saying, you don't get to erase like 90% of women so that we can be nice to a small, like these terms that we're using people who menstruate and um, menstruators and birthing persons and all of this language that's cropped up around making sure that we're inclusive and nice to an extremely small percentage feels very dehumanizing to me as a woman when you're, and so I think that's more her point is that, you know, there needs to be spaces for women that you, you are, are like sex. Yeah. <laughs> so that they <laughs> feel right, safe. But, right, wait, wait, wait a minute. Though. 
you just you just you just nailed that syndrome. Okay, I think your exact your analysis there is exactly right about what's going on. I, I personally think that this will the up, upheaval over this will blow over, and women will realize women of a certain age will will realize that they're still women, and just because the language gets played with in this and and the the niceness motive is you're exactly right. That's the motive behind all this is so nobody's feelings will get hurt. You know, everyone will feel included and blah, blah, and so on. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Except they're putting biological men in women's prisons. (laughs) So So there are certain there are certain things that are coming about from this language. It's not just playing with language there. Tell me about the prison thing. So in California, we're seeing it in New Jersey. You're seeing it in in parts in London. Men can basically self-ID as women and say, I'm a woman now. I need to be in a woman's prison. They don't have to be on hormones. They don't have to be in any sense of the way transitioning. They just have to say, I'm basically a trans woman and I shouldn't be in a male population prison. And they're being put in women's prisons and there are feminists I get it. primarily yeah. who are fighting uh, fighting exactly. this because right. these women right. are writing letters and saying help right. us yeah. um, I, uh, I predict so yeah i think I predict that there will be institutional adjustments to this mm-hmm. take some time mm-hmm. but the the culture of the, the mediated culture will eventually accommodate this situation what the tension that you're just pointing out that's unlivable that's not going to last but some kind of accommodation will be made i right. don't know what it'll be but it'll be nice <laughs> yeah this is and i think this is what people miss when they hear you know people like jk rowling push, pushing back is that yeah, she's not right. just pushing back against the language there's real world yeah, yeah. you know i I'm, i got you now so I yeah That's and then I've interviewed many of the people who have been kind of silenced online because they don't they also don't toe the line detransitioners. There's a whole population of them, people who grew up with the gender ideology and they were taken by it and they had surgeries and whatnot. And now they regret it. But if they come out and say this online, they're often silenced or deplatformed or attacked for pushing back against it. So. I'm, if, you, if you or Maggie could send me a link to yeah. some a responsible, more or less objective description of that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think that some of the pushback you're seeing, I think what's interesting is that when people push back, it's this ideology has been so captured in, institutionally that the people who push back are generally silenced. And that's where my concern comes in is that I'm all for inclusivity. Go be whatever you want to be. I don't like compelled speech. I don't like biological men in women's prisons. And I don't like people who may have been captured by a certain ideology talking about that and their experience being silenced for speaking their own truth. I, I again, I, I, I want to read more about about this mm-hmm. but i again i'm i am convinced that this this will pass this will not be a lasting horrific thing in 
in mediated Anglo-European countries. It's going to keep be doing what it's doing now, but the culture will accommodate this. Unlike in, I mean, where this gender fluidity thing is really dangerous, not, you know, not because of these few wrong things that you're pointing out. It's had everything to do with the rise of autocratic populism from Hungary to Brazil, to its, to Putin, Mm. to Krill, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, the extent to which the challenge to traditional gender identities is being displayed as the main reason for these dictators Mm -hmm. to rise to power by claiming that they're keeping the traditions going. Mm. That's where it's really doing damage. It's interesting because you said that in a conversation we had before, and it's something that's you know, I've become fascinated by now and I see it. I see that aspect more clearly and I'm not sure where the balance is exactly because some of the, it in many ways, this towing the line of this ideology as used as a way to silence people in a kind of authoritarian way, particularly by big tech. And so you're seeing it used politically like you're you're suggesting and I'm seeing it on the tech side being used to silence people. I understand, Bridget. The only way we're going to see what this really means is I'm not sure I'll be around, but I predict you look 10 years from now, you're not going to be worried about this in our mediated context in the representative democracies what it's what's funny about your book is that it points to this i mean why wouldn't you think you can be whatever you want to be biology dance it's it's absolutely a matter it's (laughs) like this does seem like no no it totally is is. i mean you get to be whatever you represent yourself as yeah this is kind of the manifestation of the mediated but I think the thing, the slight thing maybe you're missing about the book's claim about mediation is the Justin Helmet principle. In the long run, so many of these things that make us go at first get kind of settled in some kind of nice, nice way right. in, in representational culture. And I think this will be one of those things as contrasted. With, you know, autocratic populist dictatorships where I don't think that kind of resolution is possible. But this is just this just remains to be seen right now. Mm -hmm. I am hearing what you're saying about the injustices that are being, you know, committed against groups of people who can't, let's say, say that publicly talk about how they regret transitioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm just predicting that in in years, which is a short time in history, these issues are going to be resolved nicely. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, I hope. I hope you're right. I think that there'll be dialogue. This is what, yeah. This is what worries me, though, is that we've lost. This is this is don't, co- don't goes worry, back. Bridget. There's going to be dialogue. Everything's going to be nice. Is there going to be? I mean, we've seen a lot of unrest. Matilda's 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 not going to have any problem with any of this stuff. There'll be other things, but it's all going to be very nice. I promise. (laughs) 
But as you mentioned, the 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 kind of going from civility to niceness and what I've seen and what I mean by saying everything's been flattened and there seems to be yeah. a breakdown, there does seem to be a, some kind of, and I don't know if it was a pandemic and everybody being locked up and online and forgetting how to behave, but I see it on planes. I see it out in the world. There does seem to be a breakdown of kind of social cohesion and civility. Yeah. Is this just the what happens when we focus on well, niceness? Uh, here, I think you have to confront the fact that conservatives in general, by, and from, by conservatives, I mean going all the way from sort of traditional Republican conservatives who are decent and principled people to, you know, fraud claims about election, you know, and, and organized lying about election results so that you can put your anyway the whole trump thing that's going on now now i'm not sure if that that particular crowd they're primed for some uh, american version of you know erdogan or orban in hungary or the law and justice party in poland they're they're ready for that kind of a thing now it's going to be fascinating and, I, and i'm and what i'm essentially saying is that People in that general group are largely responsible for the real world, the rise of real world incivilities, the airplane things and all of that that you're talking about. Online cruelty on the other, that's a whole other subject. But I think you're right about, you know, it's there's more eruptions of passengers on planes and people actually resorting, you know, road rage, violence, and there's, there's more incivility of that kind in public life over the past three or four years, I'm, I'm really addressing what you're saying about it coming to an end and flattening, right? And I think that that's coming from a particular demographic that feels as threatened as do, you know, people who live in villages in Poland feel when they see gay pride parades. Yeah, I, I don't I totally agree with that, though. I live in L.A. where violence is escalating all the time and this is not a right wing you know when there was violence for for example when there was violence against the jewish population and there was a big rise of it and there was all of these attacks that happened about a year ago and i was talking to my father and this is where i think the kind of being ideologically captured oneself is is interesting. My dad's very old school, blue blood, left wing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, is that from all the white nationalists who are attacking? No, no, it's not. It's absolutely it's, not. No, it's primarily black people, actually. Yes. Because it's pecking order, it's pecking order <laughs> racism. And it's I was like, no, Asian. dad, I don't have enough time to like get if into this plug If you're going to get shoved off a subway platform and you're Asian, the chances are very high. The shover is not going to be a Trump white conservative. The chances are very high that it'll be a probably semi-lunatic right. uh, black or Hispanic person. That's just the statistical truth. And that's what you're referring to in L.A. as well. Right. And, and, so, and we had a lot of unrest. You know, we had riots and yeah, I, people I looting. And, and so, and again, this, uh, this wasn't I don't I'm not the kind of person who likes to excuse behavior based on 
I think people need to be responsible to a certain extent for their own behavior as much as they might want to be like, oh, Trump made me do it. Trump made me loot that store. Uh, I'm not really buying too much into that. And so I see I see I see a lack of that kind of all across the board. I just think and people excusing. I agree with you. I'm not I'm not um, by any means dismissing that there is a grievance factory that's producing a lot of dangerous rhetoric. And there was a lot very, my biggest gripe with Trump is that he gave everybody permission to be the biggest asshole that they could possibly be no matter who you were and no matter what side you were on. He just gave everybody permission to be that because they, they could justify it. And since then it does seem, then there was the pandemic. I mean, when you look at what the country went through, just with, we went through the pandemic hit when we were, hitting the election. I mean, it's, you couldn't even write this. If you made that movie, people would be like, this is completely unrealistic. Oh, a pandemic hits at the, at during this election. No. And now everyone's locked up and and alone. (laughs) Like this, this doesn't make sense. I I think what you're saying about the general atmosphere that Trump played a large role, not exclusively a large role in creating is true. But the particular explanations for the particular kinds of incivility that have undeniably risen in all sorts of different niches, the explanations that are going to apply in all of the different cases are going to be different, depending on what demographics you're talking about and pretending on whether we're talking urban or rural. And And I think mediation is the problem. I mean, ultimately, this is what I mean by everything's been kind of flattened. And tell me why. Because you, this is where I think social media is aggravating so much of this behavior. So you, I mean, nobody knew how to manipulate the media better than Trump. He, he was a master at mediation and used it effectively to, to rise to power, essentially. I, I don't hesitate to say he was a genius. Genius. Yeah. And knew how to always keep the news cycle going and knew how to just understood that. And I think people... But now what I see with everybody, and we can probably get more into this in the identity politics chapter, but with everybody online, and when you talk about a lot of this in this chapter is the the sense of entitlement that everybody has. Yes. And you're, you know, the, the postmodern child centeredness, I like you just the way we are, that we were all kind of raised with the value unrelated to ability, which you talk about participation trophies, for example, the entitlement extending beyond logic. It doesn't even matter if it makes sense and taking a very long time to grow up. All of these things, plus intense mediation, pandemic, unrest. And it just seems like your book in many ways. I hope you're right that this is Everybody will talk things out and it will work out. But my sense is that like well, the dark age. I don't need to sit down at round tables and have rational conversations. I, I just feel like the, the dark I ages mean, are coming I mean, back. the blob, the right. blob is going to take care of it. What, what it makes you be, confident that the blob will take care of it? I heed the blob never fails. The digestive <laughs> enzymes are out there already. The memes that you're talking about are at work even as we speak. It's but not it's, going to be. <laughs> it's making everybody nihilistic, though. 
You know, there's uh, a certain night and you kind of point to this in this chapter too. something about Nietzsche. And I just I worry that the isolation, the social media, the sense of entitlement, everybody has a grievance. We live in a grievance culture. Yes, we've we've turned victimhood into money. You know, it's a, it's how you can make a living. Yes. And I'm I'm still not sure. All right. Again, what the I, end I, the I, end game is <laughs> again. I, I, I think we've reached the end of the productive part of this conversation. It remains to be seen mm-hmm. when you give that description. It's an de- accurate description. But compared to conditions in Germany in the late 20s and 30s and uh, with the rise of real fascism, Mm -hmm. compared to the incivilities that were being committed uh, in pre-mediated contexts, Mm -hmm. when these kinds of feelings and thoughts and racial whatnot and chaos were, were, were let loose, compared to a great deal of what you're talking about, literally what you're talking about, not the poor person who's pushed off the subway platform, obviously, or the, <laughs> store, or the store that's burned down by breakaway looters during Black Lives Matters, or, you know, not that, but the extent to which it's all still representational mm. compared to what similar critical moments in history were like before mediation was as ubiquitous as it is now. This is nothing. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Nothing. And the reason it's nothing is because comparatively speaking is because it's all being absorbed. Right. Into representational forms of expressing all of these things. JK Rowling, you know, it's all in the, it's all in the media. Now, are there these poor kids who can't talk because they can't? Yes, of course, there are real and, you know, ID prisons. Yeah, that's real. That's real. But compared to when the shit really used to hit the fan in countries where, you know, real civil wars and real fascist conflicts, it's so far, it's really very mild. I mean, I honestly, I I agree. And you'll probably totally disagree with me on this next statement I'm about to make. But that's how I felt about the insurrection. (laughs) I mean, I was like, I I agree. No, I don't. I couldn't stop laughing. I agree. It was a TV show. And I knew I shouldn't. I was like, no, no, I know. I don't disagree. I completely agree. It felt very mediated. If that pathetic insurrection is the best we can produce by way of a civil war under these circumstances, then it just shows you how that guy with the horns yeah. and the thing can kind of just take over from whatever <laughs> was seriously going on uh, in an effort to, you know, create a coup in the government, which was also going on. Yeah. But visuals, the visuals of the, you know, you, you, that really turned what could have been a real coup into a show yeah and the show is going on right now in the committee i know i know so actually what you just said i completely agree (laughs) with and it's the pathetic ridiculousness of it that i point (laughs) out to you and i'd say that the fundamental cause for it really again compared to real insurrections that was just a, a show do you worry though that it's uh desensitizing everyone 
I don't no. worry about that. What I worry about right now is all of the all of the Trumpies all over the country who are who are applying for positions in electoral in the, in the voting institutions at the local level mm. all over the country. That's what I worry about. That is coming close to the kind of organized mass shit that has to happen if you're going to have a real problem as opposed mm. to a mediated one. And the right. fact, and it, that that is what I worry about in terms of this becoming real, really real in the United States, as opposed to mostly representational. Interesting. Which is what I think it is now. Yeah, that's really a brilliant and fascinating point. Is the the representational conflicts we're having and chaos right. versus the the real shit hitting the fan. Yeah, you 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 know, just let it and and your listeners, you know, just let it sink in. How much of that insurrection? I mean, a a guy died of a heart attack, and some people were, and that and that's terrible, right? And but come on, already we've been doing historical dumpster fires because we wanted to get away from the news cycle. These shows, and we t- <laughs> we took um we did. Caesars, we just pick an event in history and then we do a dumpster fire as if we're in that time as much as we can. And we were like, (laughs) you know, during Caesar's death, we're like, now you want to talk about an insurrection. (laughs) And then we did the um, we did the Revolutionary War. We did Paul Revere's, you know, ride or whatever. And we're like, now, now that's an insurrection. (laughs) There you go. There you go. We're kind of making fun of it's historical so, it, it, insurrection. Yeah, yeah, but now, but listen to you. It's really I, I, I can't tell you how much I admire you for. I mean, you really are thinking and not just <laughs> no. You're not just going. You had your, you know, and now you're kind of going. Eh. I'm not saying you changed your mind. I'm just saying you're open and and uh, it's wonderful. No wonder. Got I mean, I come from a place of I don't know really anything. And I've, I've seen a lot of I don't I got kind of caught in the crossfire of the culture wars. And a, and it's a book I really should write only just to process what the heck happened, because I I was writing for Playboy. And the next thing I knew, I was like on Glenn Beck. And then somehow, <laughs> you know, it's like what what I feel like I was playing just a giant game of like improv, like, yes. And now I'll go on Glenn Beck. And so I I was and I didn't have very much exposure to conservative media growing up being from the left. And it, it's been such a fascinating it's been just fascinating and and humbling. You know, there's so much that I didn't no, I always say I don't think I even knew a woman who was pro-life until I was in my 30s because I was so much in a bubble and everything around me supported that bubble. It was I like the water. I didn't I just didn't even take it. I took it for granted. Very interesting. And so I find myself very disillusioned with everything. And I, I call myself and as you said no, you're you're politically homeless. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I'm not going to try to change your mind about that. That's No, that's you had a better mind. you had a better term for it and Political I can't political explorer. <laughs> but you can do that. Yeah. I don't even um, think homeless is politically correct to use anymore. I so. just want to go back to this I come from a place of I don't really know. The Delphic Oracle named Socrates the wisest guy in Athens precisely because he knew he didn't know. Mm. That's the story on, on on not knowing. 
I'd like to take a quick break so we can talk about our sponsor. Watkins Welcome is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 27 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I want to mention, too, that you talk about something just to go back completely um, to the early part of your book and just to make this about me again. Um, No, I was laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I was laughing when I was reading your book, though, because you talk about home birth as a religion and you just mention it kind of as the options of a parent. So talking about all of this, the options and we went through that as well with the home birth crowd. It was very, and you said to like eat your placenta and Jaron and I were joking. We're like, Oh, um, now is the time where we, they, cause I always said to my OBGYN about my birth plan. I'm like, my birth plan is that me and the child survive. Like (laughs) I have a very low bar and I know that these hippies will be like, you deserve more to think that you and the child are going to live. You deserve to have like this magical experience. And I'm like, I'm not going to like have a kid in a pool under the moonlight in my backyard or whatever. Um, Just isn't really me. And I applaud women who do it because it seems terrifying to me. Really? I did, th- this is a perfect example of, you know, the kinds of differences that exist in a mediated culture, mm-hmm. which can get people all worked up. But what you just said, when you let the let, if they want to do that, you know, that's the, that's the me, that's the niceness enzyme. <laughs> I have, I have, I have a lot of niceness enzymes. My husband made a really interesting observation. We were talking about Justin Telma principle in relation to this nanic camera, which I, I call the nanny state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like this high tech camera. And it comes I with these the swaddles. Camera. Check the breathing. My kids have the grant for their kids. Oh, for their grandkids. Okay. For my grandchildren. Right. The nanny. Every state. time they're at the house, out goes the camera and they sit there and watch reruns of Mad Men. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we have it. I haven't hooked it up yet because it's it, but it it has the swaddles that make sure they're still breathing and stuff like that. And I was thinking this is a perfect example of Justin Talman principle because I was saying if something happened, would I feel like shit that I had this camera and these swaddles in a box and I didn't use it? You would. And my husband said, yeah, but that, and he's much smarter than me, I think. He said, yeah, but that's because we don't know how to evaluate risk anymore. And we've moved from risk averse to risk less. And there's an entire economy around taking away all risk at all and living in a riskless world. Of course, is impossible. Yeah, that's nicely put. 
And I thought that was an interesting point, the economy of risklessness. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's perfect. But I still would feel like shit. (laughs) The riskless world, which is indeed the goal of much of the economy, is an ideal world. We're, We're not there yet. So put the goddamn helmet on the kid. (laughs) <laughs> should i put the swaddle on her the checks are breathing yeah, that's what i meant i forgot the name. oh man yeah, yeah i'm definitely in the page 39 i was um i said i'm in this where it said uh making making everything willy-nilly into issues breastfeeding toilet training diet vitamins pacifier yeah. weaning feeding on demand sleeping this is exactly where i am in and the the options are endless. <laughs> I'm sitting in a nursery reading this, looking around at like all this crap. And I was, and imagine my surprise because I thought I just needed like a drawer and a boob imagine and like a blanket. Right. Yes, right. And people were like, you're not going to use any of this stuff. And I use all of it. I use yeah. the warmer. Yeah. I use yeah. I use the hatch light that comes oh. on with a yes. sound effect at a yes. certain time. Yes, of course. <laughs> And I hate myself for it. Of course. <laughs> That's why you like the book. Both of those things. It's the book is really a nice book and it's about how, you know, we're trapped in this thing that we know is kind of bogus and and off-putting and inauthentic. And it, but at the same time, you're not going to let your kid throttle and crib death up there if you can have some thing that'll save, you know, it's of course you're not. But I'm going to um, do a whole video on big swaddle. Yeah. I yes. mean, <laughs> but, but don't forget, Bridget, there are people out there. This is also an option who are refusing to use all these things. Right. So there you go. It's of free. course. They're, they're Luddites. They're all the choice. Yes. They're homesteading right now. Everything's and optional. There you go. Homesteading. They're getting ready for the apocalypse. That's right. That's oh, the that's thing. That's another whole thing. Yeah. I mean, this is what Jaron and I joke about. I'm not sure if I should be teaching Matilda how to like grow food <laughs> or, <laughs> or teaching her how to use, you know, teaching her, teaching her culinary, what you learn. Advanced culinary <laughs> techniques. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, like, this is the problem. This is the problem with the volume and velocity thing. You've right. All options, but you don't have the time or the space. Which is where this attention span thing thing, and you everybody ends up surfing. We you, surf ninety percent, and then we obsess about whatever we obsess about. You make the point having access to psychotalk doesn't guarantee mental health, and right. I this is something I've been hammering on in my podcast. I'm like, you know, for all of the therapeutic language, which is everywhere in the language everywhere. now, everywhere. I mean, I was on this, there's this um, website, this app called Clubhouse, and I say, come for the group therapy, stay for the struggle sessions. It's where people get together and they talk and you can just kind of listen, but it's like going to a zoo for me. And as an anthropologist, you would probably love it. But listening to the way people talk, and my husband was listening one night and he's like, this is group therapy. They were having just a normal conversation, but he's like, this is this sounds like group therapy and it's just yeah. people online talking yeah. and I don't see the mental health improving. It seems like we have a crisis in this, in this world. My guess again, I'm sorry to be so blobby, but my guess is that <laughs> the blob is your God. Uh, un- under- <laughs> <laughs> You're like, have faith under in the some blob. circumstances for some people, 
if they're meeting in some situation that's conducive and some of the people there are got their heads on straight, the, the bit of psychobabble can probably provide some comfort. Mm-hmm. Not save you from anything, you know, but can be comforting. But doesn't it seem like everyone's <laughs> mental health is diminishing? No, I know. I really don't think that. I mean, my therapist would disagree with you. <laughs> right. There are plenty of people who are having plenty of mental health problems. But compared to, say, well, this is in the book there somewhere. But I mean, you know, my grandfather, God bless him, uh, whom I deeply loved. And my father, who, God bless him, I had horrible struggles with, were both completely devoid of any psychobabble. And along with having no access to any psychobabble, they had no access to any position whatsoever. And they were both very intelligent men from which they could look at themselves and the relationships they're in Mm -hmm. and give some kind, just some kind of critical, supportive, (laughs) self-helpy, you know, Maybe I should learn to control my, you know, what just even at the to the slightest degree, they yeah. had no representation of themselves that bore any resemblance to reality. They just were. Right. My grandfather were, buried it on alcoholism. There you go. Yeah. Well, there's my yeah. So uh, my my grandfather was a puritanical uh, New England doctor. He had a mm. little brandy just put, but he had, he thought John Kennedy was going to take orders from the Pope. And I mean, but he just had no, he had no perspective. Mm. Psychobabble has provided millions of people who do things like watch Oprah or listen to Dr. Phil or whatever with some, however degraded and in, inadequate, some sense that they ought to have some perspective on themselves and what they become and what they do and blah, blah, blah. And that's a, that's a nice thing. Yeah. I only <laughs> laugh because I'm always like, bury that shit deep, like the greatest generation and get yeah. out there. <laughs> there you go. But, but that, that's funny because it's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm always saying this to yeah. friends and family. Like, yeah, bury that shit deep. Well, you, you are, but you're, you're not doing it yourself and you never no. will. And neither is Jaron. And no, he's a therapist. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> but he's funny. Get married you know, a therapist. I don't yeah. want to hear anything more from you about. No, psych- no, I'm in freaking recovery. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I live in the in this. This is my my husband's whole career. But he he's funny. You would appreciate his like paradoxical relationship to it because he's like. He's so rational and he's really good at what he does. And he's very also sensitive, but he's like, I sometimes wonder if my entire profession isn't just bullshit. Well, good for him. Good for him. And I've known a few therapists who had that kind of distance from even from themselves as therapists. So they're doubling down (laughs) on the reflexivity and that's good too. I mean, relatively speaking. Did you know that? Did I explain to you the word I made up? Fetacy? I can't remember. Was there something about fantasy? And, it's like uh, when reality becomes parody. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So y- you basically in your book talk about I wrote down fetacy because on page 43, you talk about ironic doubling and nobody understood when I first started explaining what a fetacy was. I was like, it's irony squared. 
when I, irony doubles back on itself and becomes literal, which nobody understood, mind you, <laughs> except you, well, you, you would understand that. And there you go. it is, it has come to, and since 2006, when I made up this word, everyone now that's very common, you hear this refrain beyond parody, beyond parody. It's just something in our culture. And so the word has kind of come to make a lot more sense. But you talk about this process of ironic doubling in the book. And the child's eye view of this mediated world is a view of one who has no choice but to live in it and why this cult of the child has taken hold. And I love this chapter because I love what you do with all the kids' books and talk about the, this kind of evolution. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Barry was pre-Pixar. He was yeah. really, truly, I was thinking about how he was talking to the parent and the child. And yeah. this is what all these Pixar movies do. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and it's just so, I just love this chapter. I love this chapter because I I wanted you to talk about just the, the evolution of, of like children's books in this, in this culture, the cult of the child, where it went from sent, you know, talking to regarding the child to basically, I, would, I, I, I think if I'm remembering Pixar, that like toy story is Pixar, right? Toy story, the Incredibles, all these, all yeah, right. all these, I would, I, I would say the, the, the analysis I make comparing Peter Pan with Harry Potter and um, and Good Night Moon, for that matter, is still holds. And that is, I, I really think that the pleasure that the adult took reading Peter Pan, as in the goat god Sater, mm-hmm. right, whisking Wendy off to the, you know. So the adult, the Edwardian sophisticate is reading that book to a child and is smiling to himself about the all the innuendos, all the sexual innuendos that are going on in Peter Pan. Yep. But the child isn't at all. On the other hand, in Goodnight Moon and Harry Potter and The Incredibles and, and Toy Story, what you're being invited to do as an adult is join the child as a child and be comforted yourself by the, the granny in the room and be comforted and enjoy Toy Story as if you were a kid again. Mm-hmm. That is not at all really speaking to you as an adult. It's speaking to you as an adult and inviting you to indulge yourself for a moment in being like a kid again. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Pat Barry was not going be like a kid again to his right. adult readers. He was going, let's get an inside joke off on these dumb kids who don't know anything <laughs> about sex. Uh, and, I kind of uh, appreciate that. <laughs> so, I mean, the idea for an early modern adult, you know, for a pre-mediated adult of, you know, being the child when you're uh, the adult taking care of the child, of joining the child in childishness. So a couple of people did it. I mean, that, that's essentially what, what's his name did, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Who was that? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not saying, it, I'm not saying it never happened, but the characteristic posture of an adult towards a child in pre-mediated times was not, I'm going to feel like a child and be like a child and join my child in his childishness when I play with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to find uh, that uh, the mediated 
materials that are available for you as a mother. And uh, as Matilda starts, you know, wait till she starts to say things. You're going to just. I can't wait. It's, it's incredible. She already cracks me up. With the, the names, they start to say their own things. It's just. just They're just their like, own little people. Yeah, I mean, already exactly. she's yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, with a colic like, too i'm like yeah. okay you're on your so own you, when you read good night moon or whatever and watch pixar with her you're going to be with her enjoying the thing mm-hmm. not above her do you think that's better or worse or i mean i is... don't know it's very nice no i think it... <laughs> <laughs> i love you <laughs> I, actually, I actually think i actually think it is in this case in this case only i think it's better Right. In other words, it's, this is like saying that my grandfather and father had no distance from themselves. It's in the same category for me. I think the idea that adults ha- used to have, it wasn't even an idea they had. It's just not something you did as an adult. You'd, you, you had certain expectations for kids. You made it, there'd be, but they're private. You didn't go, how are you feeling? I know. I was thinking about that. There was none of that when I was growing up, even exactly. in, in the 90s. There, no, there was no. not, they weren't well, asking us, even in high school. Bit, yeah, relatively none. There was actually some going on in the 90s. Some, but not. the 50s. No, no, I know. I There's look at my nephews and they're in counseling. About, you know, the high schools I went to, a couple of in the, in the United States, mostly I was overseas. But, you know, if boys got in a fight in the hall, some teacher pulled them apart and said, take it outside. Yeah, which means <laughs> that's in this chapter after school and go down the block. And there's a place where you guys go and fight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you, uh, did you consider how, to th- how you'd feel if Sarah called you? And, you know, none of that shit. There's so much in this chapter. I mean, there you I don't think you realize how much one line you could you could you could make a fortune just off going back through this book and writing an essay every week about something like there's a line that I loved um, scratch an educational philosophy and you'll uncover a political scheme every time. Yeah. And if you look at what's going on in our, in our, you know, school systems and the battleground that these Absolutely. schools have become. Absolutely. I mean, well, that, that, was, whoa, true that was true all along. And, but now we know it. Right. Again. again. Now we know it exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the point, the thing. and not, and people on both sides know it. Again, yeah. that's the mediation distance, mm-hmm. the representational quality of this. And you were saying the flattery of representation goes back to the printing press, which I found really interesting. I mean, this is a whole, it's a whole topic that I could sink my teeth into. Just thinking about, we were joking, you know, one of the during one of our sessions, I was saying, I, I wonder what the mirror did to people. But like my cousin Maggie was saying, but that was a slow rollout. You know, yeah, she's like, not everyone, had, <laughs> not right. everyone had mirrors. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't no, ubiquitous. No, right? Well, they had pools before that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let, 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 listen, if you want or any of your listeners or the printing thing, I could have. In fact, I've got an academic level writing about but the the name of the author i'm recommending is walter ong o-n-g and he has a book called orality o-r-a-l-i-t-y orality and literacy oh cool and it's all about the difference that writing writing with a phonetic alphabet not hieroglyphics hieroglyphics are just pictures 
Phonetic alphabets are pictures of words, which are then pictures of the thing you're talking about. Right. So uh, orality and literacy. And he gives a very accessible account of the difference between what it's like to live as a person in oral cultures with no writing at all. And then what it's like to live in a literate culture with written stuff, books. And, And this is where the flattery of representation begins when you get you read a book. Mm-hmm. And the author is talking to you, mm-hmm. and you have an inner relationship with the author. Protestantism itself was all about my inner relationship with God that I get through the Bible, directly right. reading the Bible. No priests with their incense. Mm-hmm. I have a personal spiritual relationship with God. The literacy rate in Scotland during the Protestant Reformation was higher than it is in Japan today. Wow. All good Protestants had to learn to read in order to have this special relationship through the word with God inside themselves. So Mm. the inner self of modernity was going to be literally being created by this reading experience thing. And uh, that was the beginning of the flattery. Wow. And again, it was more of a slow roll. <laughs> it it was probably much, fell fast. A much, but... slow, a much slower roll. Yeah. And then we have a, a gen- generations of all of us who have been brought up with it. And I look at the generation below. And this is why I do have a lot of I agree with you on the in this respect that a lot of this stuff won't be a big deal. And sometimes I just feel like an old lady screaming, like, get there off my go. lawn. You've got to walk this. I, I think I used even use the phrase. I can't remember if I had it over my desk or actually, but the you, you have to watch out for the curmudgeon factor. <laughs> yeah. The curmudgeon is always going, oh, everything sucks now compared, you know. Yeah. So the, older you, get, the older you get, the more careful you have to be. <laughs> it's true. You're not just going, oh, I don't like it because it isn't mine. Because I see my nephews and even the younger people, they're so adept at this. You know, I watch boomers try and get their mind around all the like they, them and the language and stuff like that and the pronouns. And the kids are just. Just do it. it. Yeah. My husband works with teens and he's like, they're correcting each other and they know know, it. They're fine. The kids are fine. This isn't going to. though? I mean. (laughs) Well, not really. Like the levels of anxiety and depression are higher than ever before. So I'm not exactly sure. Now, now, okay. Now there, again, you'd have to. And I guarantee you, if someone did this work right, you could identify the demographic of of whom this is true. And there would be certain characteristics about it. And yes. Uh, social media would have a lot to do with feelings yeah. of worthlessness that the, that these kids have, and it intensifies it, and that's bad. Um, but is, isn't that kind of antithetical to the whole like culture of therapy? And you're just okay the way you are, and value. I think, I, I think that well, the, no culture of therapy is not you're okay with the way you are. It's your you're okay with the way, but you can get, if you're feeling this here, you can make yourself into the happy person you deserve to be and you're entitled to be. I'm, my guess is that the one of the reasons these rates of depression are, you know, is that a lot more kids are going into therapy and telling them people they're depressed. Right. It's like when they... Right. It's like whenever you start measuring something, there's a big uptick. Because- That's it. Exactly. So I think if you wanted to look 
more deeply into that phenomenon, uh, you'd find that as an influence. But I think it's literally true that in a whole number of individual cases, misery is enhanced by online comparisons of your own life with other lives, other people's mm. lives. I don't think there's any doubt that there's that intensification in those particular cases working in that negative way. Um, but again, you can't, you know, you don't want to build a, a generalization. Uh, you know, the, the, the various effects of, of reflexivity, I mean, they go on and on. There's, there's many of them as there are, op- you know, there's a, more, more options, more ways of being mediated and represent, representational. And inevitably, some of them are going to be sad stories. I know. I feel, I feel, I, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> I feel like you're more optimistic than me. I, I am. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic, ironically, now than I was 20 years ago, because I've seen so many of these crises, you know, come along. And then somehow the blob just, I don't know what I just, I mean, think Israel and Pakistan could go into a whole thing about Israel and Palestine and the, the awful physical, real things going on, really horrible. But there's so much showing going on, too. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's- not, there's not outright, you know, I, I picked my worst case scenario there. Right. I mean, I, I, I just I just wonder if it's possible that the blob can absorb the inevitable intensification of identity group conflicts. That's that is the question right there. Right, right that there. Yeah. You because it in, because the blob also intensifies it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The the blob intensifies identity sense of yourself, and inevitably that's going to lead to these conflicts and tensions, which will be of different kinds in different places, and jails in England, and you know. But that it also has the potential for, you know, ameliorating the whole thing by turning it into a show like the so-called insurrection of January 6th. Is that, I mean, gosh, is, is the blob just capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> Are you, when I, when I did thing, you know, little things at bookstores for the, for the book, uh, I got that all the time from old style lefties like your father. <laughs> just is it the just the process is, of, yeah. of capitalism at work and the, the answer is that um the atmosphere that the free market creates is a tremendous objective condition that enhances the production of optionality right there's no doubt about that Oh, I mean, I was thinking about this with like uh, my joke about big swaddle where, you know, they tell you to swaddle your kid. But now there's like six different kinds of companies. And one of my favorite parts in the book is where I compare what supermarket shelves look like today, meaning back in 2006 and what they look back in like in the in the 50s. Yeah. Used to have cornflakes, Wheaties, Rice Krispies, Cheerios, oats. And that's it. One cereal for every grain. There was a few more, but, you know. That was the striking thing about traveling internationally, you know, being in Sri Lanka or India and going into a grocery store and you're like, oh, they have like four (laughs) options. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Capitalism is an objective driver 
of this culture, but it isn't at all. It, it is not possible to understand the mediated culture and the way it works by just going, it's capitalism again. Right. That doesn't help you understand any of the memes and enzymes. Right. No, it's true. They're, they're weirdly separate things. Yeah. That process, it will happen regardless. Well, you've got to have the option out, you know, the, the platforms have to be there. The, you know, the, the, the objective conditions have to be there, but they don't cause the way in which the whole mediated representational world works. That's oh a goodness. self-generating phenomenon. There's so much in this chapter. You're, every chapter is so dense and so good. And I really just hope people read the book and think about what you're saying and think about how this process is. You know, you said, and I know you have to go, authority hadn't yet shifted to the flattered self, which makes me think about, again, it's like every line creates an essay that I want to write where I've been really thinking a lot about this death of expertise where everybody is their own expert and everybody, nobody yes. trusts the there authorities. They don't. Tr- Again, boy, yeah, it's so satisfying to talk to you. Really? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. No, because you come up with these new ex- examples that show me that you really, you know, get what I'm saying. So it's, that's really satisfying. That's exactly right about the expertise thing. Because it it really hadn't. And you talk about this in relation to the children's books and how it it suddenly shifted. And then now that this authority has shifted to all of our flattered selves and we have all of these options for getting our information, why would I trust the experts? And this causes a lot of problems. (laughs) (laughs) It does indeed. But I don't know. Does it? Maybe it's good that people are questioning authority. It causes problems. The phrase that keeps cropping up in the book, which I keep, I never say anything is a good thing. I say it's mostly a good thing. <laughs> and You're I, such a good writer. And I, and I always say, you know, um, that there turns out to be a nice consequence, you know. And But the whole book, I hope, it's just laced with my personal repugnance at, you know, this that so much of this stuff, I mean, I, the way I make fun of gyms and, you know, I, mean, yeah. I just, you know, I, I'm, I've got plenty of negative to say about this mediated world. But again, when I, I've read enough history and I've read it closely enough so that I, I just can, I feel like I see this constant, you know, dampening down, absorbing, turning, potentially real violent awful conflict into displays of dis- displays of conflict into mm. in, into representational conflicts even over Ukraine pronouns right. over words over who can go into what bathroom yeah i know that's physical but still i mean you know <laughs> please yeah it's not i mean that's the thing we're what my husband and i've been watching so many old movies and stuff we watched, I think, the like last duel recently, which is, and it's so violent. And yeah. it was so, I was, I'm like, every time I watch any of these, I'm just like, what a shit time to be a woman or a child. Yeah. yeah. Always, like up until not long ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, oh, so yeah. many I mean, of these. If you, if you take a step back, I mean, for, and not just women, I, I mean, I had, I was. Children. I, men. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And just humans. <laughs> Humans in general. Yeah. It's just generally better. 
Yeah, there's a there's this article yesterday. There's always some version of this article. You know, should you have kids because of climate change and whatnot? Well, now I, that's another story. I just imagine writing that same piece during the Black Plague, though, when like one out of four people around you is dying, and you had a real reason to be nihilistic well, about the future. Have. Well, you might have. Well, you might have. Yes. Should you uh, be I, having children during the I Black do, Plague? I do. I do. No, no, absolutely. Uh, and of course, the Black Plague at its height was, you know, nothing. Salt Lake, this is Great Salt Lake drying up is not even on the same, doesn't belong in the same category as the Black Plague. But um, if you're authentically worried about climate change, it's also for a very mediated reason. It's because your sense of entitlement and responsibility has become so elevated because of the flattery of mediation that's been poured upon you that you actually feel responsible for the fate of the planet. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, not that. How, I'm how not that impressed flattered. With yourself, how <laughs> impressed with yourself can you be? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah, okay, but that's what happens. Yeah, and people who really care about climate change feel like. They're responsible for the planet the way they're responsible for their kitchen. Right, right. It's really interesting. I'm <laughs> I'm just so grateful for your time. I know you have to go and I appreciate okay. you and I appreciate how much you make me think too. And I always, I your book has been making me think forever. And now even these conversations are forcing me to, look at things differently and question things and research new things. So I'm just so grateful for your voice in the world, even if you're determined to hide it. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done as much to promote it as I should have. Don't worry. I mean, well, really hard about that one. Did they? Oh, yeah. When it came Um, out or, or just in general? When it came, I, this book, I actually did do some things, but yeah, no, in general, all my writing life, why you, you have to, you know, my agent's going, you gotta get Twitter. You can't, you know, where are you going? You have to talk to your people, you know, and I just won't do it. Uh, I, I applaud that. I, well, I applaud. I'm not doing it for applause or <laughs> anything else. I just, I, I don't have time. I get it. I'm yeah. excited. Will you? Will normal people be able to read your kind of life work that you're working on now, or is it? No, just but they for- can, they can all read me. I just won't pretend. No, the thing I'm writing now is only going to be accessible to academic edu- educated people. Uh, not mm-hmm. the message, but the way it's. Uh, but mediated is accessible to anybody, and thanks to you, I'm starting to feel like it could have a second life. Yeah, it's so, so it's so accessible. Everybody can read that. Yeah, that's what's so great about it is you take these concepts that I think would otherwise be really challenging and you make them accessible and funny. You're just a great writer. Funny. That's so, such an important part of this is the funniness. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I wrote it. It was just fun. It seems like you had fun writing it. Making joke. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. All right. Well, I look All forward right. to our next our next meeting. Me too, Bridget. And uh, give Matilda every mediated thing that's mostly <laughs> nice that you can. Okay. <laughs> she's not getting she's not getting tablets for a long time. All right. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Bye, bye, dear. Bye. It's time for the weekly check in with Bridget and cousin Maggie. 
We found the solution to our YouTube problem, Bridget talking about her shame. (laughs) (laughs) I have plenty of shame to go around. It's just going to be a shame factory over here now. (laughs) (laughs) You carry a lot of shame. I really do. Luckily, I'm Catholic. There's no an endless supply of it. Yeah, so Bridget's, you know, reading her slut article is doing something very interesting on YouTube right now. It just keeps going. Yeah, it seems like I mean, yesterday when I looked at it, I think it was in like 24,000. It was it was like it was petering out. Something happened now in the last 24 hours where I think it's gained steam again. Maybe it was the pastor talk, quoting it. Oh, it it tell, is freaking Tell people what that is. Sermon. So did someone contact you about that? Someone sent me this Twitter DM, direct message, for those who don't know what that is. Uh, hey, hope all is well. Just wanted to send this your way. Our pastor referenced your fantastic piece a couple of times <laughs> in his sermon this week. <laughs> wow, Bridget. A weapon for the pastors to use. I can't believe it. What have I done? <laughs> I don't regret it at all. I love being a slut. <laughs> yeah. I haven't listened to it yet. It's going well. We need to we need to find it and clip it. We've we really should find the, the clips to put in randomly to inappropriate things. <laughs> what do you mean? The clips of him referencing it. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yes. Yes, we should. One of us has to listen to it. I'm sure it's lovely. I said, do you know about when he references it? Because it's an hour long. And I was like, I don't want to listen to this. And then she said, pretty early in the beginning and then right at the end, maybe even during the prayer. (laughs) (laughs) They're praying for your soul, Bridget. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, someone else sent me a, a direct message and they were like, the men's rights activists are applauding your piece. Like, great. You're like, they're finally on my side? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe That's probably why that thing's going viral. Some men's rights activist is talking about it. They're like, I will stay on, I'd like to stay on their good side. (sighs) Gosh, such a weird, it's weird sometimes to think. My sister had her, she was, she and I were talking and she had her first moment like your mom had. Oh. I guess like. Someone had a birthday party at your favorite magical place, the cabin in the woods. Uh-huh. And she was, somebody was there and she was talking about something to do with me. And they were saying, it's not, uh, they were like, oh, you sh-, she said you should read her pieces. She's actually doing pretty well. And then they said, oh, what, that sounds like fancy. What's What's her name? And they said, she said Bridget Fettesy. And they were like, your sister is Bridget Fettesy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's really he's funny. like i follow her on twitter i love her i listen to all of her joe rogan's she's like that was the first time that's happened to me someone was like your sister is uh-huh. Bridget Fettison. it's a weird experience it's the, even weirder knowing that my child just puked on me i know <laughs> <laughs> like yes i was covered with baby vomit yeah, not that long not, ago i'm not living a glamorous life You know, there's, I think that it's funny when there's this perception that people like me who might be in the public are doing 
you know, not everyone's making $90 million like Megyn Kelly. People have perceptions of what your life looks like, and they'd be very surprised to see what it actually is. Yeah, it's not not a glamour shoot over here. No, but, you know, we're we're just making stuff. Matt, I keep getting talked to about the Megyn Kelly appearance that aired last week, last Friday. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she said two things that have been like written about and went viral herself. And oh. one was about the Kardashians being evil and the other about Shakira and JLo showing their badge at the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's weird the things that people pull. It's It feels to me like clout chasing because, you know, she said these things and, and not that Megan's clout chasing. It just feels like that's the reason these we talked about a lot of other stuff that right. was like way more saucy than that but just because these people are so extra famous yeah 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 that's the stuff that goes i don't remember j-lo and shakira showing their vages they did that super bowl um and they showed their vages no i mean that's just i mean i feel like that would be like janet jackson level of no they didn't show their badge but they had strip poles and like it definitely pissed off all the conservatives because they're like my children are watching this (laughs) and so yeah the i think the right wing got pretty what 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 okay well i mean and you with the kardashians you're like you've always been blamed the american people for this like this is your problem (laughs) that's what i said to megan because she was like i think they're evil a force for evil and i was like i don't know i my instinct is like don't hate the player hate the game yeah (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, they're hate. She's like, so you're saying I should be mad at America? I'm like, yes. America made them. Yeah. What they are. If no one tuned in, they'd be nothing. I'm like, Megan, we're all out here trying to get likes and fucking subscribers. Like, they're just good at it. Yeah. They're really, really, really good at it. Yeah. It's upsetting. And sure, I don't think it's good for the country. And yes, I absolutely blame the downfall of America on the Kardashians. But but they're a symptom of the problem. <laughs> yeah, they're a symptom. It's funny. And yeah. now Elon's going to buy Twitter. Oh, look at that. Hopefully, well, I mean, it'll after, probably change by the time this goes up. After all that drama. And then we had our first <sighs> live stream this past weekend. We've been busy. We did it. I mean, and then I texted you flat night and i was like i can't believe we did a live stream this morning it feels like nine million years ago like it just poor maggie i thought she was gonna cry because the computer just like crapped out right before we went live well like the camera two minutes. yeah like two minutes before the camera we couldn't yeah. get the camera working or we couldn't get the camera to connect it was like a nightmare i mean live was it was fun it was interesting i do think having sam watch the comments will help because i felt like i was so busy worrying about everything i couldn't really engage the way i do on dumpster fire like i i could barely keep up with what you were talking about let alone try and like chime in with jokes you know Yeah. yeah no we definitely need to divvy up all of that responsibility i think if sam runs the comments that would be helpful then i could just worry about I mean, still, like, if we do a dumpster fire live, it would be, I'd be, like, doing, like, the overlays and, like, this and, you know, the yeah. videos. And it's so it's, like, I I obviously have to get used to it, and then it becomes second nature. But then just the ability to be, like, oh, and then I have to be witty on top of this. I smell like vomit. Oh, <laughs> Baby vomit. Mom needs a shower. <laughs> I should just go to my business dinner smelling like vomit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that was I had fun doing the live stream. It was really fun. I felt like it was really fun to engage with our audience that way. And I felt like they liked it. And it's been getting a lot of play. You know, the recorded version is still being watched by people. So I feel like and we broke through on YouTube. We hit 54,000. Finally, we've been stuck at 53 for a year because I've fed the algorithm with my shame that's right now the algorithm feasts on shame just needs a steady diet of shame no problem <laughs> i will feed the algorithm shame every week every week will be a new regret i regret it all yeah it's, it's funny that that's the stuff that goes big well that was pretty genuine it was very genuine so many people in the comments like m- men were like Five minutes into this, I was crying. I had to pull over to the side of the road <laughs> oh, like no. I was not prepared for this. <laughs> uh, no. We must feed the algorithm. My shame. <laughs> Tune in next week for another riveting episode that will change your life, help you get out of your own way, and solve all the world's problems. I want to thank our composer, Jared Elias, my co-producer and cousin, Maggie, and all of you out there listening. This has been Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Fettesee. I'm Bridget Fettesee, and you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's the dumbest line. (laughs)